Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, Mr. Shigurian. Uh, it's Giles Wittell, a journalist uh, from London. I sent you an email which may or may not have reached you. Um, I'm in California now, um, and I'm hoping very much it might be possible to meet up. Just to introduce myself initially, I've been talking to a lot of people who say hi, and I'd love to swap notes on the Golden ADA story. Um, I'm leaving a voice message for Ashot Shagirian, one of three former directors of the diamond importing firm Golden Arda. I want to ask him about some missing money and diamonds, at least $100 million worth although some say it's much more. The money disappeared from Moscow in the mid-1990s, mainly in the form of diamonds and gold, from the Russian state treasury, as you might have heard in episode one. Ashot Shigirian didn't return my call. It's not surprising if he doesn't want to talk to me. He knows this story can turn dangerous, but it still seemed worth ringing his doorbell. I'll, uh, I'll leave the keys with you. Yeah. Okay. We head out to his place in the San Fernando Valley, about 10 miles north of Sunset Boulevard. Ashot's wife, Goha, answers the door. Hello, I'm really sorry to bother you again. It's Giles again. I, I just thought that, because I'm flying back to London tonight, just in case you had maybe changed your mind, I would come back and ask one more time. For 20 years, I've been looking for Andre. And I found him last year. He came to meet me in Antwerp. I talked to him for two days. How is he? Well, he says hello. How's Andre, she said. Andre Kozlenok. He's the man who turned their lives upside down 26 years ago. How's Andre? He's alive and well and telling lies about you. I could have shown her a picture of him smiling into my phone in Antwerp. That might have done the trick because I was pretty sure her husband, Ashot, was watching us from behind his net curtains. I'd seen them twitch. Instead, I said, he says hi. Well, Ashot refused to come to the door. The Shigirians, Ashot and his brother David, each owned 20% of Golden Arda. And Golden Arda was the diamond factory that Kozlenok set up in San Francisco in the early 90s to get the diamonds and the gold out of Moscow and sell them. In episode one, you heard how the firm was set up and how it shipped the treasure to California with the help of a Gulfstream jet bought for the purpose and a giant helicopter. You heard how the treasure was sold and the proceeds spent. 
Some people say more than a billion dollars was spent or lost in all. So what happened to the missing money? There are rumours that it set a lot of people up for life, but who were they? And who was Kozlenok, really? I'm Giles Wittell, and you're listening to From Russia with Diamonds, Episode 2. Kozlenok's story tells us a lot about Russia. To me, it tells us about the way it's gaudy and brazen and at the same time unfathomable. About the way it was looted in the 1990s by opportunists who then spent the first two decades of this century covering their tracks. And I can't help asking, is Putin one of those opportunists? We're getting ahead of ourselves here, but context is everything. The conventional wisdom about Putin's money, Putin's so-called billions, however many he has, and estimates on that range from about two to about 200, the conventional wisdom is that he's acquired most of them since becoming president. He's done that by exacting informal tribute from Russia's oligarchs as the price of staying in business. But there's growing evidence that he was busy getting rich much earlier at a time that overlapped with Golden Ada. And in any case, the Golden Ada story always seemed to me a perfect case study in human nature and unbridled corruption. It seemed like a controlled experiment unleashed on the world with maybe a year's head start on the law and law enforcement. And the question, how far could it go before they caught up? Last November, before I even knew this was going to be a podcast, as you might be able to hear, I went to meet Kozlenok in Antwerp. It was a chilly day, deep into Belgium's second lockdown. Everyone was wearing masks. On the Eurostar, in Brussels station, on the connection to Antwerp. This was before vaccines. Hundreds of people were still dying every day in Belgium from COVID. I'd been told to expect a story that went way beyond diamonds. It was so much bigger than just Golden Ada, they said. Good, I thought. Apart from anything, the Golden Ada story had never quite stacked up. And I had a long list of questions for Kozlenok about who was really behind it. Who really benefited? I was met at Antwerp Berkham Station in the suburbs. Kozlenok was waiting nearby in his lawyer's office. He was standing up in a neat blazer. He had an open-necked shirt on black jeans. He was tall, good-looking. His hair was grey, but plenty of it. Swept back like a TV presenter's. It was hard to tell then if he was down to his last few euros or if he was a secret oligarch himself. Except he'd driven all the way from Ukraine in his friend's VW Golf, so I guessed it was the former. Could you tell me... um where you would like to start. I, I would like to start. Where did he want to start, I asked. I thought the beginning would be a good place, but Kozlenok had his own ideas. He wanted to start by getting a few things straight. Everything that had been reported about Goldenada was a decoy, he said. People only know the cover story. The truth was, he'd come to San Francisco to do research, groundbreaking research into energy and space time and dimension. I took notes as he spoke. Every word he uttered opened up a bigger gulf between what I was expecting to hear and what he was saying. 
He'd smile from time to time, but not to suggest that he was joking, not at all. He smiled to acknowledge his generosity in letting me into his secret. He needed to be in Silicon Valley specifically, he said, because it was near something he called a gravitation platform. What do you mean by gravitation platform? So armed with this theory, positioned on a gravitation platform, supplied with industrial quantities of diamonds, oh yes, all this said with a straight face, he would be able to build a gravity computer and a gravity generator, and then... You can make everything what you want. Well, then he could make anything at all. Air, liquid, and had no problem. You understand? Mm-hmm. Over the course of many hours of interviews, I reminded Kozlenok several times that he was accused of spending huge sums he'd promised to return to the Russian government, to the Russian people. All the spending was now a matter of public record. The scheme he'd cooked up had been widely reported in the 1990s, especially in Russia. He said, the government shipped the diamonds, not him. He said, the money was spent by the company, not him. And he said it was Russia that had stolen from him not the other way around. The sheer chutzpah of it was astonishing. Maybe it was also to be expected, but it still felt bizarre to be lied to like this. And to be honest, I felt a bit sick. I confided in the voice memo app on my phone when I got back to my hotel. Okay, here I am in the Hotel O Cathedral in Antwerp after spending about five hours with Andrei Kozlenok, who I've been wanting to meet for literally 20 years. Um, I thought it was best if I just blurt out my thoughts um, before scribbling them down. He's a crook. He has invented a parallel universe for himself. I can't tell if he believes what he's saying or not, but he is saying that he was doing serious, possibly world-saving science in San Francisco, rather than spending a lot of money made from the sale of Russian state treasure, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds, gold, and uh, other treasure. He also says that he thinks he understands why the pandemic is happening and that it has very little to do with the virus. So, to be very honest, that made my heart sink. Why would Kozlenok bother? After 20 years of not saying anything at all, why agree to an interview request and then spew out all this nonsense? Mike DiPretoro has over 25 years of experience investigating organised crime and he was the FBI's man in Moscow in the mid-90s. I asked him what he thought. As far as, you know, Kozlenko reaching out to you and, and you getting a chance to interview him, why he would do that, I, I, I don't know, it doesn't, to me, make a lot of sense. But then once he does it, as you say, he basically tells you a pack of lies and doesn't tell you anything close to the what the, where the truth is. I, I would assume that he's just trying to, <laughs> maybe in a convoluted way, curry favor with somebody back in Russia. Hey, look, I, you know, this, this guy has been after me. I went and talked to him. I didn't tell him anything. So now everything's okay. Just leave me alone again. Now this, I admit, 
makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Lying is standard practice for anybody who's been hanging around with KGB types because that's what they do for a living. But Mike DiPretoro's suggestion was that in this case, it had a very specific purpose. To let people know that Kozlenok was still keeping his mouth shut. And those people had been powerful back in Moscow, back in the mid-90s, and are still powerful now. Well, to me, that brought the story bang up to date. Let's rewind to 1995. Kozlenok's spending is out of control. It's caught the attention of Russian investigators and the FBI, and they have set up a wiretap on Goldenada's offices and Kozlenok's home. And exactly what they heard remains under seal 26 years later. The tapes are literally locked in a box in a vault in downtown San Francisco. But who is talking to whom is more or less known. And it's only a slight exaggeration to say this information blew Mike DiPretoro's mind. For one thing, the calls from Kozlenok's big house on Happy Valley Road, some of them at any rate, were going straight to Boris Yeltsin's presidential dacha outside Moscow. Calls were made um, within the administrative offices of the, of the then president, uh, Boris Yeltsin. Um, there are also the, um, this presidential security um, group, it's like, a little bit like the Secret Service, headed by a guy named uh, Korzhakov. And also, there was a first deputy prime minister, Oleg uh, Suskovets. One or two of the calls may have ended up going to his office. Whether to him personally, I don't know, but to his office. Let's just check that list. Oleg Suskovets. He was deputy prime minister of Russia. He was head of Yeltsin's re-election campaign and a close ally of the other man, Alexander Korzhakov. Korzhakov was Yeltsin's bodyguard, but he was famous in his own right, not just as a Kremlin enforcer, but as the president's tennis partner and the man who actually claimed to have been running Russia for three years in the mid-90s when Yeltsin was mainly drunk. You know, you want to really give him the benefit of the doubt, possibly this was um, involvement at very senior levels, trying to find out what was happening to their diamonds and trying to find a way to get them back. But on the other hand, um, you could also look at it as this part of a conspiracy. Are these people complicit in the theft of the diamonds? And also, I think around this time, maybe it had become a little bit more public that both the Russians and the FBI were involved in a, in a fairly major investigation about the, about the diamonds. By now stories of a rogue Russian diamond factory in San Francisco have started appearing in Moscow. And they are potentially very awkward for President Yeltsin, who badly needs to stay squeaky clean as he runs for re-election. A troubleshooter shows up at Goldenada's San Francisco offices from Moscow. He's an older man, stocky looking. Some people say he's a dead ringer for Khrushchev on his epic 1959 tour of California. He wears shades and a white suit. He carries business cards with Russia's double-headed eagle crest and the job title, advisor to the Russian Federation. His name is Andrei Chernukin. His nickname, The Cleaner. Imagine 
find the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chernukhinets was uh, official, like uh, representative Russian government in my company. According to Kozlenok, Chernukhin was a representative of the Russian government and someone to be obeyed. So when he tells Kozlenok they need to go to Acapulco for a meeting, Kozlenok gets on the plane. We fly to Acapulco. In Acapulco, by Kozlenok's account, he and his wife Irina are locked in the presidential suite of a fancy hotel. Their eight-year-old son has stayed behind in San Francisco, being quote-unquote looked after by Chernukhin's daughter. But Chernukhin himself, the cleaner, is along for the ride. And he tells Kozlenok and his wife that they won't see their son again, ever, unless Kozlenok gives up his stake in Goldenada. And he told, if something you're not signed, uh, we practically uh, destroyed your son. And he told, you cannot escape from there. Why? Because four guys with machine guns stay. Four men with machine guns are standing outside the room, while Kozlenok considers Janukin's proposal. There is no chance of escape. And did you sign? Kozlenok and Janukin then proceed to the US consulate in Mexico City, where Kozlenok signs over his share of the business, and Chernukin hands over his son. They flew him to Mexico City? Yes, yes. We do have to take this with a big pinch of salt. We're in the hands of an extremely unreliable narrator. But... If what Kozlenok is saying here is true, then he was the victim of extortion by a Russian intelligence operative on the grounds of a US consulate, which is, to say the least, unusual. As is what followed. Kozlenok and his family fly on to Costa Rica, where he's told to lie low. But he manages to escape. First, he sends his wife and son on ahead to Antwerp. And then, he says, he hires a body double and a female hiking companion for said body double and sends them off into the mountains. He says he was being tailed all the time by Chernukhin's men, but they took the bait and they followed the hikers. Immediately, 
Kozlenok buys a ticket to Belgium and he's in Antwerp before Chernukin's people even realise he's given them the slip. Kozlenok has turned into a liability. By this time, Chernukin and the Russians are extremely anxious to have him back in Moscow. From Kozlenok's point of view, Belgium is the perfect place to be, however. This is not just because it's got Antwerp, the centre of the global diamond trade, but also because it doesn't have an extradition treaty with Russia. But even there, in Belgium, Kozlenok wasn't safe, and he seemed to know it. In 1996, he put his wife and son on a plane back to America. It was the last time he would see either of them. Several years later, his wife Irina made a trip to Moscow to sell a family apartment. She arrived off a night flight at 10 in the morning and was dead by the evening. She was suffering from cancer at the time, but her condition was supposed to be stable and Kozlenok believes she was poisoned. What do you believe happened to Irina? Some people told to me that it was poison. And is that what you believe? Yes, I believe it, because I know the system very well in Russia. We've got no way to verify this, but we do know that a connection to the Goldenada story could be dangerous. It could be lethal. In 1998, one of Kozlenok's Moscow associates was jailed and found quote-unquote suicided in his cell. It wasn't suicide. All the evidence pointed to strangulation by prison guards to prevent him testifying in his own trial. Kozlenok was starting a fight with a Kremlin power structure that included people with an interest in Golden Arda's assets, in the cash, in the real estate, in treasure yet to be sold. I don't think it's ever been able to be documented that Yeltsin himself <laughs> received, personally received anything in particular, but the daughter, Diachenko, the Dumachev, the son-in-law, there's, there is stuff, there is information out there that indicates that they definitely... <laughs> benefited by putting a lot of money in their pockets that didn't really belong to them. So who are these people? Yeltsin's daughter, Tatyana Djechenko, and her husband, the presidential son-in-law, Valentin Yumashev, is an ex-journalist who's now big in Moscow real estate. These were both paid-up members of what was known in the Kremlin very simply as the Simya, the family. If they'd been beneficiaries of Goldenada, they would not have wanted Kozlenok talking about it. If Moscow had been New York, we probably could have done a RICO-type prosecution of not Yeltsin, but right beneath him within his family. And just to explain, what is a RICO-type prosecution? A RICO-type prosecution is what we would use to take down an organized crime group. It's um, racketeer-influenced corrupt organizations. And it would, it would basically be a, a way to go after... A, a criminal group and and um, and effectively dismantle that group. And you're saying that if what you understood to be going down in Moscow had been going down in New York, then you'd have had jurisdiction and you could have proceeded that way. Yes, and we yes, we could have, and it would have been because this is what we were not independently uh, you know doing, but it was what we were being told but what was going on in Russia by our Russian counterparts. But of course, this wasn't New York. This was Russia. 
1998, Chernukin tricked Kozlenok into flying to Athens, where he was arrested, jailed, and eventually extradited back to Moscow. While he was being held in Athens, he said he feared for his life if the Russians got hold of him, but something protected him. He stood trial, and he was given a six-year sentence, of which he only served four. It's my impression that he has basically <laughs> been given a, a warning, maybe a little, little bit like Zhirov, like, you know, keep your mouth shut, you know, be a good boy, don't talk about any of this stuff, or else something bad could happen to you too. In essence, Kozlenok was protected for protecting someone else. And who would that be? Well, the obvious candidate is Yevgeny Bichkov. He is the precious metals minister who'd been in on the scheme all along. I believe that as far as Kozlenok's role in this, I don't think to, to, to do this, to have pulled off what they did with all the diamonds leaving, I don't think Kozlenik would have been the, the, um, the mastermind. I think he was more of, an, of a front man or an intermediary, somebody that, that like a middleman, you can use him, um, but it, it, would, it, would take, it would take much higher, higher authority, Beechkoff, others, to, to be able to do it. And they, they just needed, they needed somebody who could, who, could, who could help pull it off, and he was, he was the guy. So in this scenario... Kozlenok is the front man and Bichkov is the mastermind. The question, does it go any higher than that? But at the end of the day, you probably can only, as far as peeling the layers off the onion, you can probably only take it back as far as Bichkov, unless Bichkov would be willing to talk. And it was very interesting, too, on Bichkov, how <laughs> they, do, they do kind of put the rap on him, say, hey, you shouldn't have done this. And then, lo and behold, before he can be charged or really convicted, he gets amnesty. You know, if you're over 60 years old and you're as a, as a part of the World War II uh, celebration, and you're over 60, you're immune from prosecution. Oh, golly, Bichkov's 61. The episode Di is referring to here is a perfect little Russian cover-up. Bichkov had been publicly implicated in the Goldenada scandal and publicly admonished for it. But prosecuted? Heavens no. He turned 60 that year, and he was a military veteran. And it was decreed conveniently, that military veterans should have immunity from prosecution when they turn 60. How does that make you feel as a law enforcement professional? <laughs> you just have to go with the flow. It's Russia. You can't change it. You know, it's, it's what, it, what it is. And it's just, you know, you do what you can do. You go, you go after the bad guys, you gather the evidence, and then the chips fall where they may. So who was Bichkov protecting? And who ultimately drew a line under the whole thing. Another FBI agent on the case put it to me that the answer to the first of these questions was Yeltsin, and the second, Putin. His theory was that Putin, quote, pulled a Hoover, unquote. That is, a J. Edgar Hoover. Putin found out where all the bodies were buried, so to speak, and named his price to make them go away. And in this case, Putin's price was power. There were a lot of shenanigans that happened on, on Yeltsin's watch that Putin would be aware of and could easily use to um, help put him in a position that he, where he ended up. There definitely was a quid pro quo. I would think, and I don't want to denigrate the diamonds at all. I mean, 500 million or a billion, that, that's a huge theft. 
But so much else was going on, had gone on under in Yeltsin's watch. This loans for shares with um, Potanin, who was, uh, I guess, another first deputy prime minister. But it was all about getting Yeltsin reelected in 96. And it's basically the looting of of, of uh, the nickel industry and, and a variety of, of, of industries in Russia and, and putting, you know, letting people take control of these huge, <laughs> I, I think like, like the Norelsk Nickel, which is Patanen, for $170 million, he acquired uh, through this loans for shares a, a thing that was valued at $3.4 billion. And so to me, if I'm Putin, Yes, the diamond thing is is definitely something that it's another arrow in my quiver. If you if you want to kind of blackmail Yeltsin to put put me in office, but there's so much else that went on that that I would think he, I would have played a few other cards first. Well, perhaps, but there's no doubt that Goldenada was there in the pack. So let's quickly lay out the chronology of how the whole thing was wound up. In 1997. Putin moves into his first job in Moscow. He's made chief of the main control directorate of the presidential property department, a position in which it would have been very hard not to be aware of Goldenada. The following year, in 98, the year of Kozlenok's arrest, Putin becomes head of the FSB, successor to the KGB. And there it would have been impossible not to be aware of Goldenada or of any of its tentacles. In 1999, he becomes Prime Minister. And on January the 1st, 2000, he becomes Acting President. And in his very first act, he signs a decree granting Yeltsin and his family, the Simya, blanket immunity from prosecution. And I think it's fair to say this was a weight off Yeltsin's mind. I say this partly because 10 months later, I interviewed him in his dacha about a memoir he'd just written or had written by a ghostwriter. The book was part of a big, organized reputation laundering operation. And for someone who'd nearly died from the stress of government and all the vodka that went with it in his case, Yeltsin was incredibly relaxed. He was friendly, laughing. He was definitely on the wagon. His daughter, Tatiana, was there. She brought in tea and cookies. It was quite clear that her dad had nothing to fear. A new era had begun, and he had nothing but praise for the new man in charge. And, of course, the new man in charge has been in charge ever since. Kozlenok told me that Putin definitely knew about Goldenada. In fact, he told me that he, Putin, and Chernukin were good friends. Talking to people who were involved in Goldenada, whether as part of it or investigating it, it's pretty standard all these years later for them to shake their heads and say something to the effect of, this was just the tip of the iceberg. You do know that, don't you? And in general terms, we do. In 2019, an economics advisor to Putin said Russia had lost a trillion dollars in capital flight since the fall of the Soviet Union. But that doesn't mean a billion is small potatoes. And of that billion, about 600 million relating to Goldenada is still unaccounted for. So who got the Goldenada money? I'm afraid I still don't know. Not for certain anyway. If there's anyone out there listening who does, please get in touch. 
Last week, I tried to get hold of Kozlanok again on the phone, but he's disappeared. People who used to be close to him aren't sure if it's a stunt or if he's been detained by Ukrainian authorities or even if he's still alive. One person who knows him well and thinks he knows what's happened to him said cheerfully he'd try to arrange an invitation to the people he thinks have Kozlanok under lock and key. They won't harm you, he said. They won't put you in jail. They won't kill you. If they like you, they might even tell you what happened. Well, I'm waiting by the phone. Thanks for listening to this episode, and if the phone rings, who knows, there might be another one. This story was written and reported by me, Giles Wittell. It was produced by Emily Williams of Feast Collective and Danny Carissimi. Original music was by Tom Kinsella, and the editor was Basha Cummings. Thanks for listening and staying with us for this two-part series. It was made by us here at Tortoise. And if you'd like to join us and get access to our podcast first and ad-free, then just use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. We'd really love to have you. Thanks and see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.